Second John, a letter that we've been taking our time going through. So if you'll pay attention with your eyes as I move through, I want to share with you today under this title, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Let me introduce our topic this morning by saying this. If you know me, you know I like movies. And we could get into that and have a debate over what movies are good and what movies I like that you don't because you're wrong and I'm right and that kind of stuff. We all have our particular flavors of movies and so on, but there's one movie I think that if not all of us, nearly all of us have seen and I think all of us probably enjoyed, and that's a movie called A Few Good Men. And that movie, A Few Good Men, it starts with, it stars Tom Cruise as the attorney, the Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, and an arrogant, stern colonel named Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson. You know the movie, two Marines are being court-martialed because of actions that they took against another Marine. We're not going into a bunch of detail this morning, but the climactic scene happens in a courtroom. Lieutenant Caffey is drilling Colonel Jessup until finally he asks him what he wants to know. I deserve the truth, he says, to which Colonel Jessup says, you can't handle the truth. Interestingly enough, that was not the line. That was ad-libbed, and it has gone into movie history, I think, as one of the most memorable lines that we've ever heard. Well, it really means nothing to us, though, because that's Hollywood. That's a movie. It's a great line, and we enjoy it, but what real implication does it have for you and me in real life? You can't handle the truth. It's a condescending remark meant to belittle someone, meant to suggest that one person can and should have control over the truth on behalf of others. But in reality, the Bible is clear. God has revealed the truth to us. And in the fact that God has revealed the truth to us, there's an expectation of us to know the truth, to obey the truth, and to guard the truth. These are the three points that we'll be looking at today. So if you're ready, say amen. The first point that we'll be addressing today is this, know the truth. This is going to be found in verse 5. Know the truth. Let's just begin in verse 4 and move into verse 5 to wet our palate. You can read with your eyes as I read aloud. God's word says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children. That's the apostle John writing to this church in this reference to children. He's referring to church members, the, the people who are a part of this church. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, reference to the church at large, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from when? The beginning. That we love one another. Our first commandment today that we're being reminded of here is that we are to know the truth. 
First and foremost, we are to know the truth. Now, I don't think there's necessarily a reason for us to belabor the point here. We've already covered this to some degree over the first few messages in 2 John, and of course, 1 John as well, because it is a common theme throughout. But because we've spent some time on this, I don't want to belabor it, and yet I do want to share a couple of things that are worthy of note. First, I want you to see the tone and repetition that is visible here in 2 John. I want you to note the tone and the repetition. In the first four verses alone, John uses the word truth five times. Repetition serves the purpose of emphasis. Let me say that again. Repetition serves the point of emphasis. We say it. We say it again. When we want something important to be heard and noticed. We also are repetition because our heart overflows with a particular theme. John is concerned in this case with this church and its connection and familiarity with truth, the truth of God, the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. The second thing I would like you to note is the assumption of knowledge. We see a tone and repetition, but, but we also see an assumption of knowledge on John's part. If you look again at verse 5, John says this, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. That phrase that's tucked there in the middle of verse 5, you can see it with your eyes. He said, we've had this command from when? From the beginning. In other words, you already know this. I don't have to remind you of this because you've had this. Not for a little while, but from the inception of your faith. From the beginning of your reception of the gospel, you know the principles of Christ. You've had this from the beginning. I'm going to remind you, I'm going to tell you, but I'm not telling you something that's new. I'm telling you something that you already know. And not only is this assumption made, but there's a twist, if you will, that I see here in the text, and it pertains to truth and love. And in fact, we're seeing two different commands tied together in the first handful of verses here in the second epistle of John. In verse 4, we're being told that we are to walk in truth. And in verse 5, we're being told to walk, as it were, in love. Verse 4, he talks about walking in truth. Verse 5, walking, if you will, following a commandment about love. Would there be any greater vision? Would there be any greater presentation of Christ than a Christian who lived his or her life in truth and love? Would there be any more attractive Christian to either the church or the public outside the church than a Christian who lived their life in truth and in love? 
Well, this leads to the second point that I want to address with you today, and that isn't know the truth, but as it's revealed to us in verse 6, that we are to obey the truth. And we're going to address some of these issues that I've brought up so far this morning. But we aren't only to know the truth, as it is revealed in verse 5, but secondly, in verse 6, we are also to obey the truth. Let's read it together, if you would, verses 5 and 6. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another, verse 6, and this is love, get this, that we what? Walk. I know we're we're a little down, it's summer, everybody's getting their quick hiatus before school starts, but I need you to help me out. That we are to what? Walk. Walk. According to his commandments, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. We're to obey the truth. That's the second point we're looking at here from the lesson that's revealed to us in verse 6 and following. This is indispensable to our faith and to our testimony. In fact, while John uses the word truth repetitively, the other word that seems to stand out in this text, if you were to just read it aloud, sitting in your office or your kitchen at home, I think one of the words that you would find that repeats itself over and over again is the word commandment. This is not a new commandment. This is the commandment that we received. This is his commandment, and this is what he has commanded us. Over and over again, Jesus, sorry, John is saying walk or commandment, walk or commandment. We're seeing this idea, this repetition rise up to the top, and again, as I've already said, repetition is used when there is an emphasis that's required. When it comes to our faith, church, John is telling us by way of this letter, that Christians can't pick and choose the kind of truth they will or will not obey and know. Say that again. You don't have the privilege to pick and to choose what you will or will not obey or know. All truth is God's truth, and all truth God has called us to obey. If we would be his people then we must be his people in truth and obedience because God's honesty and integrity is non-negotiable. Amen? The scripture teaches us, Numbers chapter 23 and Titus chapter 1, that God is incapable of lying. God cannot lie. And what's more, he does not change his mind. God's providence and God's will always unfolds according to his perfect pleasure and plan. He's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. And he is never disappointed at an outcome because it is always according to his pleasure and his plan. I bring this to your attention because it's important in view of this fact God is calling us to know and obey the truth. Why? Because theologically speaking, it is the means to the end, which is to say we cannot know God if we don't know truth. And to know truth is to know God. You can't dislocate these things. We can't say, well, I'm religious, but I'm not a Christian. 
We can't say, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't read the Bible. These things are not made available to us in God's revelation. If we would know God, then we must know God's truth. And if we know God's truth, then we are in a knowledge of God. In particular, here in verse 6, John says, again, look at it with your eyes, this is love. That we walk, what's that word? Walk according to, I like the according, I love love the excitement. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Essentially, John is saying the same thing twice. He's like stuck on this redundant train. He just keeps emphasizing these simple points. But can I say something to you? We need reminders. I don't know about you, but I need reminders of my sinfulness, of my shortcomings, and not only of my sinfulness, but I need reminders that in view of my sinfulness, God's grace is so much greater. I need to be reminded that even though my shortcomings are magnificent, no one sins like I sin, except you. (laughs) And where my sin abounds, God's grace abounds much more. I need to be reminded of that because regardless of how successful I am as a Christian, I need to be in Christ. Regardless of how successful I am as a Christian, it's all about Jesus. Regardless of how successful I am as a Christian, God is calling me to be more successful in view of what he's done for me. Church, every now and then we've got to be reminded And it might seem redundant. It might even seem, dare I say, boring. But may God help us to never be bored with great themes like truth and grace. May God help us to not become bored of the themes that guarantee us the glories of eternity and the fellowship we're promised with his Son. I want to pause here momentarily and acknowledge two things. The first thing that I want to acknowledge is the sense I get when we read this, namely that if someone says that they're a Christian while they have no interest and no passion to walk with God in the truth, the reality of the matter is they're probably not a Christian. I say this without hesitancy and without apology. Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. So if you say you're a Christian, but you have no Christian fruit, I believe the fruitlessness, not your word. Christians obey God, no matter how imperfectly, amen? No matter how deficiently, Their passion, their zeal, and their strive is always to know the truth and to obey the truth. The second thing I glean here from this that I'd like to share with you is the relationship between these two things that we typically dislocate, truth and love. Truth and love. Church, as Christians, we are called, even commanded, to have a hearty and passionate attachment to both truth and love. The pendulum can swing. In fact, it does swing. Amen? 
It has a tendency to swing one way or another in our lives and in the lives of other people, and we must be cautious not to allow that to happen either to one extreme or the other. We have to stay focused on what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. There are those who are so interested in loving their neighbor that they serve constantly but couldn't give you the definition of the gospel if you asked them to. There are those who are so infatuated with books and theology and talk that they never do anything for their neighbor. But God has not called us to one extreme or the other. He's called us to a passion for both, truth and love. Church, we should have a walk with God that is balanced in this truth and love. In fact, if we take John's illustration of walking a bit further, we could even say that the Christian life is walked on the two feet of truth and love. And in order for you and me to make progress with each step we take with one foot, whatever that foot might be, we must take the next step with the other foot. So we've got to serve and read. We've got to read. We've got to serve. We've got to meditate and pray, but we've got to love on people. We've got to do both things if we would be faithful to the word of God in our life. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said it this way, I want you to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Years later, Martin Luther King would say something along these lines, I need you to be tough-minded but tender-hearted. We've got to have both aspects in our personality, in our Christianity. However you want to phrase it, however you want to see it, a balanced Christian, say amen if you're listening, a balanced Christian is a Christian who knows the truth and lives the truth. On the other hand, there are those who refuse to obediently walk in the truth of God. This is contrasted by those who are described by John in verse 7. Look at it, if you would, please. In verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. I think it's interesting that John says here in this text in a warning against deceivers that they have gone out into the world. It's interesting to note that John isn't telling us that the church needs to beware of the evil philosophy outside of the church. He's saying that the evil philosophy we need to be aware of has gone into the world from the church. Well, that's totally different, isn't it? We can stand up here all day long and say, that world, look how evil that world is. That world has no idea what it's doing. That world's lost. Don't read those books. That's, that's secularism. Don't bother with that, etc., etc. But the reality of the matter is that's not what John is saying here. What John is saying is, is beware of the false teaching that's gone out from the church. It's gone out from the church into the world. One commentator 
I. Howard Marshall writes this. They had gone out into the world, that is, as missionaries for their particular brand of Christianity. But their influence was not confined to the outside world. Did you get that? They had gone out of the church and into the world to preach their particular brand of Christianity, but the effects of that preaching was not confined, were not confined to the world. So whether you get it from verse 7 or whether you get it from this quote from I. Howard Marshall, I think the suggestion is very clear. It's difficult to accept and to realize, but it's plain. These false teachers left the church and went out into the world, but their false teaching didn't stay in the world. It came back around, and it was negatively affecting the church too. I'm reminded by what John said in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were never really of us. This is difficult to accept, but it's our responsibility to realize this. Amen, if you're listening. The wolves outside the church are not the danger. It's the wolves in sheep's clothing who are in the church. They're on your Instagram feed. They're on your YouTube history. They've got massive followings, many of them. And they love to preach their brand of Christianity. John is saying, beware. Beware of these people. Well, here's a good question. What, in fact, should we be aware of? What, in fact, makes their teaching false or unbiblical? Look back at verse 7. John says it unequivocally, without any question. He says it plainly. They denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. In other words, they preached Jesus, but they didn't preach what we call the incarnation. Incarnate, in the flesh. That's the teaching that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, left heaven and came to earth, was born of the woman, Mary, and was consequently 100% human and 100% divine. He was 100% human because of the circumstances I just described to you. He got hungry, he ate, he got tired, he slept, and in the end, our Lord died. But as the second person of the Trinity, being divine, he could not cease to be divine. Divinity is divinity. And any divinity who ceases to be divine ceases to be divine. Paul says it this way, Jesus never stopped being divine. Instead, he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he served the Father's will, even to the point of death on the cross. They accepted the incarnation, sort of. They accepted the idea that God's Son came to the earth, kind of. There's a variety of perversions of this doctrine throughout history, even to this day. One of them is a form of theology we call Sabellianism, from a theologian named Sabellius. We also call it modalism. 
Perhaps you've heard of a preacher named T.D. Jakes. He's part of a denomination that believes in modalism. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that God has revealed himself in three modes. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One God who has revealed himself in three modes. Not three distinct persons who are distinct and yet one God. Well, that's heresy. So T.D. Jakes is a super dynamic preacher, a super dynamic teacher, and he also is a heretic. He and the denomination that he's affiliated with hold to what is called modalism. The issue that we are facing today, church, you and I, is the issue that is resolved with the answer to this question, who do you say Jesus was? Perhaps even more pointedly, who do you say Jesus is? That's all it boils down to. John says that people weren't teaching this, so they were denying the biblical Jesus, and he calls them deceivers. He even goes so far as to call them, at the end of verse 7, antichrists. Now, I don't know about you, but there is no greater insult in Christianity than to be called an antichrist. It's the worst. But John doesn't hesitate to refer to them so. We are called to know the truth. We are called to obey the truth. Finally, we are called in verses 7 and 8 to guard the truth. Let's look at that again. Verses 7 and 8, it say, they say this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Verses 7 and 8 fall under this heading, guard the truth. We've talked about knowing the truth and obeying the truth. And finally, we're going to observe guarding the truth. If we know the truth and consequently obey the truth, then it shouldn't be unreasonable to expect God to leave this responsibility in our hands, namely to guard the truth. Watch yourselves, John says, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. John says that we're to watch ourselves. We're to watch ourselves. And I, I don't know if women say this kind of thing. I've never been a woman. I don't plan on being a woman. You kind of have to say that these days. As a man, as a father, mentoring young men or having children, sometimes you say things like this. You better watch yourself. Do moms say that too? Does it carry the weight Hey, <laughs> easy does it, gallery. You better watch yourself, right? There, there's a solemnity there. It's a serious remark. It's not a grave discipline, church. It's a warning. 
You need to watch yourself. John says that we are to watch ourselves. And, and, and as Christians, I think the idea is clear. He's called us to know the truth. He's called us to obey the truth. And then in this case, he's saying, be careful, because there's a lot of people out there that would steer you away from the direction God would have you go. Watch yourselves. Guard the truth. Guard yourselves. This is a phrase that's used a number of times in the Bible. It implies a moral and ethical oversight. It implies convictions. You know what those are. We used to talk about them a lot here in this country and in the church. It implies awareness. It implies, I might add, that there is in fact a line. That we do believe this side is right and this side is wrong on this issue. That we do believe there is such a thing as an objective and absolute truth. And that it exists apart from our own opinions. You can't guard yourself or guard something in view of a belief that doesn't exist. So this point means nothing if you don't know the truth and obey the truth. It only makes sense to guard something that you believe exists. In this case, John is saying guard the truth of Christ. Guard the truth of obedience and walking in truth and in love. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says it this way, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. That's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Peter similarly says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. Church, we are sometimes accused of being closed-minded. Amen? Best compliment I've ever been paid. You need to be more open-minded. No. Open-mindedness is the first step toward ruin. There are a lot of people today who would not be dealing with the circumstances that they are dealing with had they not been so open-minded. The truth of the matter is, is this. It's an untrue accusation. Christians aren't closed-minded in reality. We are open-minded, but we're open-minded with a filter. Our minds aren't closed. Our minds are open. We just have a filter, and the filter's called truth. And if your whatever it is you're spreading hits our filter and doesn't go through, it doesn't get in. We're not just open by letting anything and everything come through, but we see that, don't we? We see that. We see eclectic people. We see people, they go to church, but they light candles, and they have the elephant, and they put the dollar in the mouth. They have the beads of the santos on their wrist, and they pray to this saint and that saint, and they go, but I'm a Christian. No, man. It's Jesus plus nothing plus nothing more equals everything. It's all Jesus all the time. Paul says in Colossians 3.11, Jesus is our all in all. So we guard this truth not because we're closed-minded and we're rude, but because our open minds have a filter, and the filter is God's truth, 
And if your opinion, your reading, your persuasion, your whatever comes against the filter of God's truth and does not pass, it does not make it in our mind. Because I don't want your truth. I want God's truth. I don't want your preference. I don't want your opinion. I want God's preference. I want God's opinion. I think this is important, church, as we look back at verse 8, because our, our reward counts on it. Our reward counts on it. Look at it again. He says, watch yourselves. And we've got this already. We've covered that. And we pretty much have an an understanding of this idea. Watch yourselves. And I love this. This is a purpose clause in the Greek. So that. It's like, don't run into the street. So that you don't get hit by a car. Watch yourselves. So that. What we have worked for isn't lost, but you may have the full reward. Now, this is important. This word reward is sometimes translated wage, as in what's deserved, the payment. It's referred to by Jesus when he gives the parable of the men he sends out into his vineyard and then calls them back at the end of the day to pay them their wages. So this is what they have earned. This is what John is saying to these Christians. They deserve. So it's important that we understand this. Amen if you're listening. John is not teaching us that we could lose our salvation. John is not saying be watchful because you might lose your salvation if you're not a perfect Christian. I'm going to relieve you of a great weight. You will never be a perfect Christian. Actually, up until this day, You have not been a perfect Christian. If you could lose your salvation, you would. From start to finish and everything in the middle, it's grace. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. We stand here at the foot of the cross receiving the truth of God's word, which tells us we are to be watchful, not because we will lose our salvation, but because we could lose a payment here. Remember, salvation is a gift. It's not a payment. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But what John is saying here is there are rewards for our labors in Christ. When we serve Jesus, when we faithfully bring the name of Jesus to the public, to each other, when we sharpen each other, when we serve, when we love, we are, as it were, gaining rewards as we faithfully serve our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, for example, talks about a time when God will reward the prophets and the saints and everyone who fears his name. And you know if it's in Revelation, it's... Since this is the case, I want to share with you a couple of thoughts. First, we should guard the truth because it's true. We should guard the truth because it's true. The Apostle Paul once wrote these words. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition 
according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. See to it is a military term. It's like a commanding officer coming to a soldier and saying, see to it that this gets done. Paul is saying to the church, that's you and me, are you listening? See to it that you don't get deceived by philosophy and empty deceit, by the traditions of men rather than on Christ. If we believe the truth of God, then we should guard the truth of God because it's valuable. It's transformational and it's redemptive. It isn't something to be neglected, church. It isn't something to be overlooked. And it isn't something to be disrespected or mocked. If it is disrespected or mocked, then we should be willing to speak up in its defense. Don't be a cowardly Christian. I know the world has gone mad absolutely mad. The political persuasions that exist today have jettisoned all common sense. It's not even about reason anymore. It's just about seeing how far the line can be pushed and tolerated. I regret to say we have tolerated too much. We need more Christians who are courageous enough to speak up about their convictions. The truth should be guarded because it's true. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says it like this, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But anyone who disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. There's no middle ground here. Either we're for Jesus or we're not. This is the beauty of truth. It doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room. Either you are or you aren't. Either you are for it or you are against it. My question for you today, before we go to the second thing I want to acknowledge is, are you for it? You are either for it or against it. Secondly, We should acknowledge error. Now, sometimes I get text messages or uh, emails that encourage me and tell me, should you be saying people's name from the pulpit? And usually I'm nice. I have a way that is not as nice, and I own that. Not in a way it's, that is like, just deal with it. I'm an imperfect man. Wouldn't you agree? What's so funny? I'm bearing my soul. Here's my heart right here, and everybody's laughing. I'm just kidding. Kristen, nice to hear your laugh again. John says in 3 John, he warns the church about diatrophies. Paul says... I'm warning you against Alexander and Hymenaeus. In the New Testament, they name names. I'm following a paradigm. If you don't like it, you're just uncomfortable because you don't want to say what's what. 
The biblical paradigm is not to be polite and tiptoe around issues. The biblical paradigm is to swing an ax, to name names, to tell people, do you see that guy? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 5, I've delivered him to Satan so that he would learn to stop blaspheming. If he repents, receive him back. We got this casual, like, kitty cat Christianity. It's all purring. But that's not the Christianity of the New Testament. The Christianity of the New Testament expects us to call out error. The New Testament Christianity expects us to teach it, to obey it, and to guard it. If truth is truth, then there is error. And if there is error, then we have an obligation to recognize it. If there's a right, then there's a wrong. I like how Norman Geisler said it years ago. He said, you cannot beware of something you are not aware of. You must be aware before you can beware. If I don't teach you the truth of the gospel and on occasion the counterfeits that exist, how can you beware if you are not aware? Friends, we don't have to study a thousand counterfeits to be informed, but the reality is we do need to study and know the truth. If we know the truth, the exclusive biblical truth of the gospel as it's found in God's word, then we can combat anything and everything that comes down the pike. But we must know the truth of God. I honestly think that this is where we fail so often. The ungodly know their ungodly behavior and their ungodly philosophy. They know it well. But I don't think the godly know godly philosophy as well as the ungodly know theirs. Isn't it amazing how skilled sinners are at sin and how unskilled the righteous can be at righteousness? Listen to the following verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. Wow. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast the confession. It's not, you know, the idea of holding fast. It's not this. You're holding fast to the confession without wavering, without compromise. We cannot afford to be mentally lazy. We cannot afford to be lulled to sleep by social media and 400 episodes of some show that's just rotting us. We cannot afford to, to be weak because of mental atrophy. Instead, we must be mentally engaged. We must be active in the word of God and in Christian conversation. We must be using the facilities and faculties that God has given to us to use. If we don't, then the enemy will sneak false doctrine into our lives and into our families and into our churches, and we won't know the difference. 
because our minds are soft and fat and out of shape. One final note on this issue. We attack and we tear down ideas and false doctrines, but we don't attack and tear down people. In rhetoric, we call that an ad hominem argument. Whenever someone shifts gears and stops arguing a point and starts mocking an individual, they've lost. That's why they're attacking the individual. They don't have the faculties to debate the issue itself. As Christians, we believe that regardless of how ugly a sinner's life might be, they are made in the image and likeness of God and that they can, in the name of Jesus Christ, be redeemed. So let's not act like they're not. When you attack ideas, you attack ideas full force. Without mercy, you tear the idea to the ground, but you don't mock people. You don't call people names. And you don't make them feel, regardless of how wretched they might be, that they are beyond the saving arm of God. We have become comfortable with sin and complacent about doctrine. We've become tolerant of deviations, but intolerant of resolve. I'm hoping that maybe we'll flip that. I'm hoping that we start to have a sort of cognitive faith that enlivens a passion in our heart so that we walk on the balanced two feet of truth and love. To close, let me say this. It isn't up to someone like Colonel Jessup, to guard the truth on our behalf. God has revealed to you and to me what truth is, and we have been called by him in his word to know it, to obey it, and to guard it. And whatever happens as a result of that, say that again, whatever happens as a result of knowing the truth, obeying the truth, and guarding the truth. Whatever happens, we are in God's hands. And we are in God's providence. And I would rather deal with difficult circumstances in God's hands and in God's providence than enjoy a beautiful and blissful life outside of God's hands in God's providence.